and its decisive pain by a handful of silence read by literarian chapter 3 the cotswolds and the midlands they forge a routine as much as the lackadaisical diversions and aimless accessions to gentle mildly prodding whims can be described in that way they're on holiday, after all. If one could look at their permanent desertion of their respective posts as such, and the days and weeks take on the timeless, slightly dreamlike quality of all good holidays, meandering like a particularly indolent river. Aziraphale wakes up late, eyeing the bedside clock stupidly and unseeingly for a moment, before he bounds up, fretting that they've lost half the day, that there might not be time to see everything. And, gesturing his shirt on inside out, his socks mismatched. Crowley, already up and sitting fully clothed on top of the covers, will laughingly remind him that they've all the time they want, and will only sometimes inform Aziraphale that his clothes are on wrong. They'll sit down in the hotel area set aside for breakfast, Crowley sipping coffee and sometimes treating himself to a slice of toast, leathered and butter, because he likes watching the conveyor toasting machine. Aziraphale poring over maps and flyers and his growing collection of little guidebooks, making intrigued noises, absent-mindedly eating his way through a bushel of croissants and umpteen cups of tea. Aziraphale approaches their time like the newly retired, or a pensioner who has just got their bus pass, and Crowley sits back and finds he doesn't mind that very much at all. They spend two days in Bath. They walk in parks and wander the old Roman thermae they once met up in, light-heartedly bickering about the trouble Crowley allegedly got Aziraphale in, expanding to a general excavation of the number of times Crowley was, apparently, behind Aziraphale's woes. Aziraphale gleefully recounts memories long fallen into disrepair and shoved to the back of the mental closet, sometimes giggling so hard it sounds like he's hiccuping excessively, and Crowley tries to defend himself in between laughing so hard he's got to wipe away tears. The debate ends up like most of their other long-standing arguments, a permanent draw. On the second day, they take afternoon tea in an upmarket Regency tea room, and Aziraphale sneaks the half slice of cake that Crowley hasn't finished without thinking. Crowley is drawn to the thermal baths, because a building dedicated entirely to such pampering and sloth and vanity is something he's meant to champion, but also because it's been a while and he loves the thick cloying heat of the sauna rooms, the hot rocks pressing down his spine, the exfoliating rubs and creams and masks that make him feel like he's shed a layer of skin. It's the sort of thing that Aziraphale would usually like, but the angel doesn't look keen when he mentions it. He makes to cross this off the list then, because Crowley doesn't want to go in on his own and risk losing sight of his travelling companion. But Aziraphale must read his expression like a large print headline, because he touches his arm and tells him to Go on, don't let me stop you, dear boy. Have your fun. I'll sit in the waiting room and read the paper. 
Crowley spends three hours getting massaged, steamed, buffed and polished, almost dozing off in the humid warmth of the sauna. And there's a tingle of nerves, but they're easier to ignore, because he knows that Aziraphale's right in the waiting room, probably with his tongue half stuck out, a furrow being ground between his eyebrows as he tackles the crossword. When he comes back out, that's exactly what he finds. As the days trickle on, they stroll up the Cotswolds, stopping as they please and following their own particular whims. Crowley spends a day wandering through one of the largest arboretums this end of the country, marvelling at the diversity of specimens. Aziraphale's arm tucked into his own as they walk, and Crowley chattering about botanical matters and little tidbits of knowledge he's picked up over the years. At some point, he can't help himself, and after advising the security cameras to be looking elsewhere, he carefully harvests a cutting from a few more spectacular growths. An investment for our garden, Angel. He justifies himself when Aziraphale scolds him lightly. Your garden, you mean, you old serpent. Aziraphale replies fondly. The weather is glorious for the time of year, but it's still England, so there are the odd overcast days and even a few spring downpours as they meander out of the Cotswolds. A plethora of country houses and grand gardens and sunny tea shops under their belts. When one of these turns in, the weather disrupts a plan for a riverside stroll. Crowley sees his opportunity and takes Aziraphale to the cinema for the first time since they went to go and see The Exorcist together. Aziraphale eats most of Crowley's popcorn, even though he'd declared at the food kiosk that he wasn't much of a fan, and Crowley throws some of the unpopped kernels at him when a slightly predictable action scene happens. Aziraphale roundly pronounces him childish and immature, but that doesn't stop him throwing some back, until they're trying to shush each other to quell the noises they're making. Aziraphale's quite taken by the advances in computerized technology since he last saw a film, even though he's fairly dismissive of the story, and they heatedly disagree as to whether the ending was a perfect culmination of the character's struggles and the overarching narrative metaphor, Crowley, or a load of old tosh, Aziraphale. In the evenings, they dine or stay in the hotel room and order room service. Aziraphale will have bought a book from a charity shop at some point, and he'll sit reading it on the bed, while Crowley half sprawls across him, watching TV or a film. Sometimes the hotel has two beds, but that stopped mattering so much. With wordless motions, they've started gravitating to only one. One night in Circuncester, Crowley glances up from where he's struggling with a particularly fiendish Sudoku puzzle, having chosen to stay on his bed for a change so he doesn't accidentally elbow Aziraphale in the face with an over-eagerness to write a long-sought number combination, and notices that Aziraphale hasn't gone to sleep. Aziraphale usually drops off with all the grace and suddenness of falling over, but he's tossing and turning with little petulant huffs, taking it rather unfairly out on his pillow. He is also casting glances over at Crowley to see whether he's going to join him. 
He is, to his credit, trying to disguise this, but it's got all the subtlety of a brick through a window. Anything for a quiet life. Crowley chides and gets up to slide in beside him. Move over, angel. Aziraphale squeaks as Crowley's feet touch his legs. My dear, you're freezing! He protests, squirming away. Cold-blooded. Crowley reminds him with a toothy grin, trying to warm his limbs closer to Aziraphale's and getting kicked away for his troubles. Aziraphale eventually relents with only a little bit more complaining. Crowley moves nearer to bracket his body against him. Is this... is this okay? He asks, uncharacteristically quiet. Aziraphale's hand comes up to anchor his fingers around Crowley's wrist. He has his back to Crowley, so he can't see his expression. It's okay, he replies, and he doesn't let go even when he slips into sleep. And then, just like that, they stop the pretense of sleeping separately. Crowley greedily tries to prompt their bedtimes earlier, just so he can take advantage of the warmth, and Aziraphale knows exactly what his game is, but indulges him nonetheless. And somewhere near Cheltenham, Crowley opens his eyes one morning to find he's finally slept, and he lies drowsy and contented under the weight of the eiderdown duvet, Aziraphale heating the bed like an open oven as he snores and shifts in a dreamless sleep. Sometimes in the mornings, when Aziraphale thinks Crowley's not awake, he'll press a dry kiss to his forehead, and Crowley struggles to remember the last time he was this deliriously happy. One night, they drive up to one of the highest summits in the area, park up the car and look out across the rolling hills as the sky pinkens and the sun sinks lower. Aziraphale brings a tartan blanket to sit on, a thermos flask full of tea and a bottle of rather saucy red, and they sit quietly on the roof of the Bentley, watching the horizon go dark. I'm going to retire, Crowley says, apropos of nothing, as Aziraphale passes him a little plastic picnic cup full of wine. I haven't been really working for them since Tatfield. I might as well make it official. Aziraphale looks at him, but it's hard to read his expression in the growing dark. A demon without hell, he says thoughtfully to himself. An angel without heaven, Crowley reminds him. It's definitely a first for the books, Aziraphale says. It's not like there's precedence for it. Who knows what will happen? He chews his lip nervously. Do you really believe what you said? He asks after sipping his wine. That they'll want their war after all? That it will be us versus them? It won't be much of a change from how it's always been. Crowley replies, and Aziraphale smiles at that, and it grows like a watered tree blossoming to a shy beam. He holds his glass up and they toast wordlessly. Crowley wakes up with the tendrils of a hangover, frowning and confused, experiencing a whole body crick from where he's contorted his limbs in sleep. Someone's placed a scarf under his neck, tucked a thick oatmeal coat around him. 
There's the rumbling of a perfectly preserved 1926 Bentley engine beneath him, aggravating the stiffness in his limbs, and over it comes a humming to an incredibly dated baroque melody. Are you driving my car? Crowley asks with a sluggish incredulity. His tongue feels like a cotton ball in his mouth, but he gets the words out. Doesn't bother you too much, I trust? comes the jaunty reply. Crowley doesn't know how he feels, because no one but him has ever driven his car before, but he settles for making an evasive grunt and wincing at the streak of headache that flits across his forehead. Go back to sleep, Aziraphale says, obscenely chirpy for the amount of wine he drank. I'm driving us to Gloucester. Crowley nods without really listening, and is starting to doze again before the words filter through. Can you even drive? he asks. I can do a great many things you aren't aware of, Aziraphale replies haughtily, and accidentally clicks on the windscreen wiper instead of the left-hand indicator. Crowley decides that this worry is a problem for another time. He shuts his eyes again. Don't touch the radio presets, he mumbles. I wouldn't dream of it. And the indicator only needs a gentle push. The car gets if. My dear, you're in safe hands, I assure you. Sleep. Crowley does as he's told, smiling. There are bad days, of course. One morning, Crowley wakes up from a disjointed sleep, the sense of something murky and overgrown dissipating slowly as he wakes. Aziraphale is awake already beside him, his shoulders draped in the yellowing haze of the morning, a faint run of freckles visible through the gap in his flannel shirt. Crowley doesn't know if he slept or not. Morning, he says cautiously. Aziraphale's unblinking eyes are staring at a point past his head. Crowley is sure he can see him, but in the same way as safety cards on aeroplanes or exit signs in a cinema, he's background. They've got that dulled, unfocused sheen to them, fogged up by a film of something vacant. People lose focus all the time, when they're daydreaming, or not listening, or their minds are miles away in sunnier climes. That is not this expression. This expression is trying very hard not to be anywhere at all. Aziraphale? Crowley asks, subdued, and his reply is a dense silence. He's learned over the course of these lapses that it's not that Aziraphale can't hear him. Aziraphale isn't in the hotel room, not right now, but he can see Crowley, can see the flock wallpaper of their travel lodge, can see the open wardrobe where their coats hang side by side. He just can't trust it. They won't be going anywhere today. Slowly, Crowley reaches forward and places his fingers over Aziraphale's hand. Precisely and pressureless, like he's setting his fingers down on the strings of some violin ready to play. Ever so carefully, he pulls the hand towards him, across the small gulf that separates their bodies, 
places the half-fist that Aziraphale's made against his chest and waits. Aziraphale always comes back. It only takes time. His hand unfurls like spreading wings, palm flat over Crowley's chest. His flat expression ripples with concentration, with an uneasy frown. And after a while, Aziraphale's eyes refocus, like a blurry background suddenly seen through glasses, and there is such relief on his face. You back? Crowley asks. Yes. Aziraphale replies, his voice thick like he's been crying. Do you want to talk about it? Aziraphale opens his mouth, closes it again and shakes his head. There are things behind his gaze that only time can shift. Crowley gets it. All right, he says casually, stretching out as though he's just thought of the idea himself. We can stay here for the day. Breakfast and bed, naff daytime TV, the whole shebang. Spoil ourselves a little bit. Aziraphale bobs his head once, like a tired marionette, and turns over onto his side, his back to Crowley. It's not a rejection. They're having to get good at things like this, reading into gesture and motion what they say and what they don't. Crowley doesn't know why, and he won't ask, but in his black moods, Aziraphale finds it hard to look at him for too long. Crowley slots himself up against the curve of Aziraphale's back. Aziraphale's the taller, and Crowley's forehead rests against the nook of his neck and shoulder. He feels, for a split second, unconscionably guilty, because he loves moments like these. Holding Aziraphale like this, as they lie against each other at night, tenderness written in the arch of their bodies, their spaces blurred into each other, limbs tangled and draped heavily over the other. Too often when they're awake, when they don't have the low light of evening, Aziraphale's pulling away, diving into the day when Crowley wants to just ask him to stay a while, let them lie here, let Crowley bask in his warmth, in the intimate dip their bodies have made. And now, in these moments, he gets what he wants, what he's too tentative to ask. But Aziraphale's body is taut, warring with the thoughts he won't share, struggling through a mire of emotions he can't name. Sorry, my dear, Aziraphale murmurs unhappily. Crowley headbutts him gently with his forehead. Shut up, Angel, he says teasingly. We're having a moment here. Aziraphale huffs something that on paper could be a laugh, and Crowley feels pleased. It's short-lived, and the guilt comes back like the tide. If you want... The tickets are still valid. They'd booked matinee tickets for something at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. Crowley had been studying the programme, making little comments about how these actors compared to the great of earlier decades, and they'd both been looking forward to it. We can go tomorrow, Crowley says. I don't mind. But... You'd do the same for me, Angel, Crowley replies. We'll stay here until you're feeling better. It is true, 
because Aziraphale does. Because the angel is not the only one carrying his ghosts around with them, the contents of his poorly dealt with troubles upended without warning. There are days when Crowley buzzes sleepless with something scratching under his skin, some crackling impotence that renders him frustrated and angry and reminds him too much of failure. He struggles to get the fog to clear, and he's short in his speech and angry in his manner, mired in a guilt that won't shift. He'll leave Aziraphale, incensed by his moods, and he'll go and find some out-of-the-way place, and he'll drink until the feeling is drowned out, when all he feels is flat and empty and lost. And he can't understand why, because Aziraphale's back, he got him back, they're together, he should be happy, but he's not, not today, because time doesn't heal things just like that, it seems. Aziraphale will find him later, and Crowley isn't ever quite sure how he always manages it, but he'll arrive and settle a hand against his back, and then, with infinite patience, take him home. He listens to his furious, aborted ramblings, the anger he's bleeding out through the skin like sweat, the sobriety he doesn't want to embrace just yet. He doesn't complain or judge or ask why, just tucks him in and strokes his hair until he falls asleep in a stupor. Crowley suspects they both have their own ways of coping. Could you... Aziraphale starts, and he can feel himself tensing again, and Crowley presses his lips to the skin at the back of his neck as a reassurance. Could you talk? Aziraphale always asks him. To tell him everywhere he went in those years they spent apart, all the places he looked, all the things he saw. He doesn't know how much it helps, but Aziraphale asks as he waits for the mood to pass, and so Crowley obliges. Sure. Crowley always replies, and so he does. They approach the Midlands in the same way Crowley approaches jigsaw puzzles. Aziraphale has a structured pattern, corners first, then outside bits, then working inwards. Crowley's strategy is to turn out the contents of the box, set all the pieces upright and stare at them, allowing patterns to lazily unify in his mind's eye, attempting multiple times to match one piece to another without success, but undeterred by his setbacks. So, because Crowley is driving, this is the methodology they take in travel. They go left to right without much pattern, like an indecisive yo-yo. They traverse up to the Warwickshire area, sample Warwick and Kenilworth and Lymington, but instead of travelling on to Birmingham, they managed to reach Manchester after about a week, because Crowley decided they should stop off at Cambridge, Great Yarmouth and Shropshire first. These were on the way by the same logic that Edinburgh is sort of on the way to Cardiff, or that a pit stop in Oslo is sort of on the way to Boston. Like someone who has fully committed to throwing their lot in with a crazed mapmaker, or a man who has left barren their field of cares, Aziraphale has stopped worrying too much and lets Crowley take them wherever they end up. They've arrived in York to a traditional northern greeting of light hail and the wind psyching itself up for a committed bluster.
They get there late, distracted by something or another on the way, and Crowley's eyes start to get heavy midway through the documentary he's watching, making exaggerated yawning noises, and he succumbs to the inevitable at about eleven, settling down next to a set-up and reading Aziraphale and burbling a good night to him. Come 3am, and something unusual is happening. For the first time in weeks, for a start, Aziraphale is the one not sleeping. There is nothing stopping him. He put down his book hours ago, although his arm has gone numb because there's a demon fast asleep on it, hissing softly, adding a threat of sound to the creak of the walls and the whistle of the wind and the tapping fingers of the rain on the window. Aziraphale's mind keeps coming back to think on this, Crowley in his arms, in the same way a child on Christmas might repeatedly creep out of the bed to check under the tree. He keeps getting distracted by it, not the kind of bright lights and loud noises distraction, the attention-grabbing of circuses and arcades and cinema shows. It's a distraction like being suddenly caught in an arc of sunlight pouring through clouds, catching a scent of something sweet and unexpected recalled from childhood, seeing someone beloved smile and feeling that sensation echo in your chest. Aziraphale strokes the hair on Crowley's head and breathes quietly so as not to disturb him. No, what Aziraphale is doing is thinking. He finds it harder to do in daylight when Crowley tucks on his coat, brimming with the things they can do and experience, and Aziraphale following in the wake of his own personal whirlwind. Taking the advantage, now, in the back rooms of his brain, some diligent and studious desire has chosen to clock in the overtime, rousing the bellows and flicking on the lights and hankering down over a metal table to do some serious pondering. He's been at it for a good many hours, drawn away by the distraction of Crowley, and his train of thought is, if anything, speeding up. He had tried not to think too much, down there in the dark. This was not to say that he hadn't, but with a lack of new stimulus, additional data, memories growing slightly fainter in the retelling, his thoughts had fossilized into the same depressing conclusions. With Crowley breathing against his neck, the flames he'd extinguished for his own sanity he was allowing to rekindle. A locked box of hopes and fears and regrets that he's now having to sort and sift through. He is thinking about heaven, about hell. He is thinking about himself, and he is thinking, most of all, about Crowley. After a few more goes on the cognitive merry-go-round, he gets up. Careful not to wake the demon as he slips his deadened arm out from under him. Crowley manages to almost immediately roll into the warm and dent in the bed he's left behind. Aziraphale pads into the small hotel bathroom and closes the door so the illumination doesn't rouse Crowley. He doesn't lock it because no matter what he rationally knows, the size of the space still has the unexpected capacity to bring a fanged, growling terror to the forefront of his mind. He stands in front of the mirror, 
its foreground interrupted by a plastic cup occupied by the branches of two toothbrushes, a rather swanky com Crowley bought in some men's grooming shop, a little pot of lavender hand cream that Aziraphale was tempted by. Aziraphale for the moment ignores these giddy reminders of domesticity and instead gives himself a long, hard look. He didn't used to think a lot about his body. There was a lot of things he didn't used to think about, willfully or not, and his corporation is another one to add to that particular list. It was something he had, of course, that he took care of, that he was aware of on some level, but in the same way that people are aware of wine bottles and yogurt pots and envelopes. Aziraphale's corporation housed his essence, and so long as it fulfilled that function, he didn't pay it much mind. Angels wear their bodies like a work uniform. Aziraphale was expected to keep his well-groomed, healthy, and present himself in such a manner as befitting his station and adhering to company guidelines. How successful he was on this front was a matter of some regular consternation from his superiors. Aziraphale's presentation had always veered towards the type of employee who, at a company meeting, turns up five minutes late muttering apologetically about the traffic and gasping, a coffee stain on his shirt, his tie knotted too tight and his hair still damp from the shower. It wasn't that Aziraphale didn't try. His hair tended towards a bramble bush, getting a perm look if it wasn't kept in check, and according to some mysterious rule, his clothes, no matter how modern or sleek, would almost immediately slide into well-lived-in, faintly worn and slightly dusty upon first wearing them. Eventually, Aziraphale had stopped trying so hard and meekly weathered the lecture he'd get whenever he had to go back to heaven. He did what he was told as well as he was able, kept his hair short and tried to ignore his suspicions that, when it came down to it, he just wasn't particularly good at being an angel. And now this body, well, it's his. In the same way that human bodies are theirs, that they can adjust and decorate with colors and inks and dyes and modifying surgery. The only one they're given and the one that they have to make do with the best they can. He doesn't know how to think about that, the finality of this form. They're not exactly going to hand out a new corporation to a former agent who has renounced his position. Now, if he gets discorporated, there won't be anywhere to go but back, and something in the recesses of his mind quails at the idea of returning. He studies, for the first time, the changes those years wrought on his body. It's not as bad as he assumed. His body is hard-wearing, human only in the ways it has to be. There's a sparse scatter of blonde hairs that curl over his chest, no nipples to speak of unless he makes the effort. Going further down, the convex planes of his stomach, chased down by a starburst of freckles congregating over his hips. He's thinner than he was, and he can't help but think bitterly that heaven would be proud. His body has lost the roundness his former comforts afforded him, and retaking the ground is a slow process. 
He can see his hip bones, the promise of collarbones, and he finds himself irrationally angry at that. Finds himself missing the rolls of weight and the softness of skin he used to wear, the space he used to take up, that was him, that was a choice he made regarding his body, how he wanted to look, his small rebellion against the party line. He can regain it, of course, but it's that it was taken from him in the first place. It's as tears start to roll wobbly down his face that he recognizes that it's not about his body. Not really. He had no choices, not for all those years. He'd lain immobile, trapped in a sunless cage, wasting away, tormented by his failures to act, his regrets, disturbed only by the shadows of people who weren't real. He had given up. It was a fluke that he got out, a weird, unpredicted glitch in the universe, and he could very easily still be back there. And even, he thinks, his mind clutching to this as his train of thoughts gains momentum, even in the years before, what choices had he had then? Everything he wanted, he dissected with his own fears, his own prejudices, a mastery of self-sabotage. He was told what he should be, how he should look, what he should want. He was created being told that there were truths. And he'd listened. Aziraphale looks at his white blonde hair that never lies neatly, ruffled into upstruck waves. He fiddles with a curl, rolling it between his fingers. His hair doesn't grow unless he wants it to, and so it's been like this since Eden, barring minor adjustments. Maybe he wants a change. No, he thinks slowly. He considers his former conclusions like someone examining a pressed flower. No, that wasn't quite right, was it? He had had choices. He'd always had choices. He just hadn't made them. He looks at his body, the crow's feet that bunch around his eyes, the marks on his lip from where he's been biting them almost without noticing. He sees something that looks quite human. He'd had about as much choice in being an angel as Crowley had had in becoming a demon. But then Crowley had been an angel too, once. Genetics, Crowley had once empathetically argued, had very little to do with anything, and Aziraphale had been inclined to agree. Being an angel was part of his identity, but it had, more relevantly, been a job. And aside from the geographical positioning on the vertical axis, the different corporate propaganda, the interior decorating and the wing grooming, being an angel was not so different from being a demon. Crowley had encouraged divine inspiration as much as Aziraphale had, from time to time nudged some humans to dabble in a bit of healthy lust with a consenting partner. But humanity? Well, that was a whole different existential kettle. Because being human really was a choice. More of a choice than being an angel or a demon. 
you could genetically be a person with all the right chromosomes in the correct places and all the important parts fully functioning and still not achieve it. People weren't naturally good or naturally bad and, left unchecked and unbothered, they inclined toward natural instincts, which were generally to act like people. And people chose not to be human all the time. Heaven had told Aziraphale that they knew best, that there had been a plan and it was his duty to stick to it, that he shouldn't question ineffability, but they hadn't known anything. They'd told him that there was a reason for everything, but meaningless things happened all the time. There were meaningless wars and meaningless deaths, meaningless romances and meaningless lives. A life could be wasted, chances could be given and squandered, and there was no meaning in that. No one came out on top, no one prospered from lost opportunity. They'd told him that demons couldn't love, were incapable of it, that it wasn't their fault, but it was how it was, I'm afraid, nothing to be done, and yet there had been a demon using him as a pillow last night, a demon who kept the bedside light on so Aziraphale wouldn't panic in the dark, a demon who had looked for him, who had kept on looking even if it had been hopeless, a demon who loved him in all the ways that mattered. It's not like he didn't know. He's known for a long time but acknowledging it now fills him with a dragging shame. Because Aziraphale hadn't been as strong as that. Crowley had looked and looked and looked, and Aziraphale had tried everything he could before he'd given up. He knows exactly what he'd thought during those years. Knows without a doubt that if he'd had the ability to end it, properly ended, to make it all just stop, he would have taken the option unquestioningly. He might have thought about Crowley with despair, he would have thought about what ending it would do to the demon if he ever found him, he would have regretted it, but it wouldn't have made him change his mind. And now Aziraphale has to carry on knowing that, when it comes to it, in the dark, when frightened and alone and faced with two clear choices, he'd done what he's always done, and put himself first. And surely Crowley deserves someone who would make him happy, who had been stronger, who had never wavered in his affections, who hadn't been so frightened on the repercussions that he treated his love for Crowley like some sort of moral failing, like it was something he could fix. He keeps being reminded of the Crowley he had seen, down in the unbroken dark of his prison. Sometimes his mind conjured a scowling Gabriel from the shadows, snooty and contemptuous, but mostly it was Crowley that his brain would read through misfiring signals, rewriting the darkness into something tangible. Crowley, who hadn't been real, who had made it difficult to remember that when he pressed his hand against the glass nearest Aziraphale, murmuring kindnesses and promises he couldn't possibly keep. Crowley, who would eventually, like a good dream tipping predictably into a nightmare, devolve into bitterness, face scrunched with a snarl, 
anger scrolled open across his face. Crowley, who hated him for the things he'd done and hadn't done, for stringing him along, for hurting him, who told him nothing Aziraphale didn't know to be true. Because he must have hurt him, and saying that, well, he hadn't meant it, that deep down Aziraphale had loved him, that wasn't any consolation. Because the best excuses in the world are still excuses, and Aziraphale had had a lifetime of becoming very good at making them. His hands on the cool marble of the sink counter are trembling. He can't bear looking at his face. He chokes back little hitching tears because he doesn't want Crowley to wake up, to see him like this, to try and comfort him after everything Aziraphale's done. It occurs to him, with a growing intensity, like air heating up to boiling, that something inside him, bright and untarnished and unyielding, something at the heart of him, is getting cross. An arms folded, finger wagging, quietly seething, furious. How dare you, the thing at the heart of him tells him. How dare you persist in this self-pity? How dare you sabotage your chance to be finally perfectly happy? How dare you look at what's being offered to you, what has always been offered to you, and shrink away because you're scared you won't measure up? That you won't be good enough. Be good enough. Make yourself worthy of what you're being given. You stood next to him, ready to fight the morning star, and you knew what side you were on. You knew who you'd chosen. And now you're scared. You're pulling away. You're holding back because of all your doubts that one day he'll look at you and know how much of a coward you are. So do better. Be better. Aziraphale thinks of how he loves Crowley, of how Crowley loves him. Thinks of how things might be, allows himself to believe that he can have this, that he can choose this. The flame inside him burns brighter and bigger than he is, and he wants, in the same way as some people cry or love, with his whole body, his entire essence lent into the sensation. He's torn between bursting into tears and slamming the door of the hotel bathroom open, grabbing Crowley and pressing kisses to his cheeks, his forehead, his lips, telling him he loves him with an outpouring of everything he's made of. Aziraphale breathes out and allows the kicked-up dust of his newly refurbished world to settle. He's never been a door-banging, bombastic declaration sort of person. Instead, he clicks out the bathroom light and steals back to the bed. He slides under the covers and for the first time thinks nothing at all of gathering Crowley against him, pressing a kiss to his dark, rumpled hair. An excited plan coalesces in his mind. And when morning arrives and finds Crowley continuing to breathe open-mouthed against the pillow, Aziraphale dresses with a thought writes a reassuring note to Crowley on the hotel notepad and steps out into the morning.